Hello everyone, and welcome to Secondhand Stories, where we invite you to slow down and listen up. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. We're very excited to bring you our first episode today. A couple months ago, we released a demo episode on our website, secondhandpodcast.com. In it, we describe the origins of this podcast and attempt to give our audience a preview of what to expect once we actually get going, which is now. In case you missed that episode and are just tuning in, we founded Secondhand Stories on two ideas. One, there are a plethora of good fiction writers out there not getting their shot. And two, there are a dearth of options for listening to fiction. Fiction barely exists on the radio, and the costs for audiobook services can be prohibitive for some. In this podcast, we'll bring fictional storytelling back to its original form as an oral tradition. In order to make this happen, we're holding an open call for submissions. Send us your short stories in any genre of fiction at jim at secondhandpodcast.com. And be sure to check out our guidelines at secondhandpodcast.com for more information regarding what we're looking for. We've gotten a ton of great material so far, so special thanks to everyone who has submitted to us, and we look forward to reading all of the stories to come. The plan is to use two submissions in each episode of our show, and for now we'll be releasing an episode every two weeks. That's all the logistics. Now is everybody ready? Our very first story comes from an old friend and a supporter of the show from the very beginning. Ryan Jorley of Phillipsburg, New Jersey, has officially been writing short stories since his senior year of high school, although his interest in creative writing started with the standardized test NJ Pass and its story from a picture exercise. His goal is to write short and long fiction of different genres, in addition to science communication nonfiction. His story today was inspired by an extravagant house he spent a week in while doing marine ecology research at Lohine, Ireland. The classic restored mansion with its myriad of books and old portraits gave him a very creepy feeling when he thought about everything too much. Ladies and gentlemen, our very first secondhand story, Ryan Jorley's Covered Eyes. I thought it would be nice to get away for a little while. I had accumulated some time off, you see my wife Sandra would be off from teaching for the summer. We wanted to get out somewhere in the country, a getaway type of place. In this lock manor, it's way out there, far away from the cities and the suburbs. It looks so charming in all the photographs online. Not to mention the reviews were stellar. Well, right up until recently. I'm telling you, it was the weirdest thing. Five stars, five stars, four stars. It was like that for years and years. Then suddenly, the past few months have been, nice place, I love the area, but the pictures, they're terrifying. Or, the vacation would have been perfect if not for the paintings all through the house. There was nothing more specific than that, and I didn't know what to make of it, but I had a friend who stayed there years ago and couldn't recommend it enough. I've never been one to get creeped out for no reason, and to be honest, it didn't even seem significant enough to mention to my wife. So, we went ahead and booked this lock manor for a week. When we first pulled up that gravel driveway, halfway up this big hill, I was so sure it was the right decision, that it would be the perfect vacation. For those of you who don't know, it's this 19th century mansion that was restored some 30 years ago. I heard it didn't even have a full roof when the current owners bought it. But they had enough money to make it look authentic. In the view, at the bottom of the hill is this small lake, glimmering blue, calm like a sheet of glass. 
A lot of times people say they get a bad vibe from a place when something isn't right, but I honestly don't believe that's how it goes in real life. I'll admit, I was a bit nervous when we arrived at the house and met with the owner Maud Kelly and her groundskeeper. They were standing outside the front door when I first saw the widow. She was short and thin, really thin. Her eyes were much livelier than the rest of her body, as though if you took them out of context, you wouldn't be able to tell whether they were excited or terrified. She had white, wiry hair that spilled out from under her red beret. The groundskeeper was something of a contrast, if I must say so. Tall, muscular, the kind of guy who was meant to manage a property. His face seemed welcoming enough, but perhaps more nervous than I'd expect. Still, he was the first to speak. Ah, you must be the McCarthys. Pleasure to have you here for the week. A few things first. He stopped short, noticing the subtle hissing sound coming from Mrs. Kelly, who appeared slightly distressed. Excuse me. Taking her hand and leading her along, the groundskeeper, Keith is his... was his name, showed the frail woman to the car. He returned slowly. She gets tired easily? I asked, trying to rekindle the conversation. No, I don't know that tired is the correct word, he said, glancing back at the car with its window cracked just enough to see the tip of the red beret. Perhaps wary is better, I don't know. Her husband recently passed, you know, right at the beginning of spring. Sandra gasped. I'm so sorry, we had no idea. Was he sick? Keith fidgeted, if only imperceptibly. No, it's not much of a comfortable story, as a matter of fact. He leaned into the two of us, like he was about to make some confession he wasn't sure was well known. There was an accident. Down there on the shores of the lake. What do you mean, accident? Right down near those boats? Yeah, down along the shore, if you can believe it. Anyway, I figured I should tell you at least this much. Since then, Mrs. Kelly has become a bit more... excitable, you could say. She and her late husband lived here during all months except for the summer, and I think the bad association stressed her out too much. Keith bit his lower lip, as if wrestling with the thought of going on further. I was far too curious by now. Stressed out how, if you don't mind me asking? The groundskeeper sighed. Well, she claimed she could see her husband's face, throughout the house. She made it sound like his eyes would appear in the eyes of the paintings and photographs. Now, the Kellys have always been superstitious, but it's nothing more than that, you know? I stared at the man, unsure of how serious I wanted the next sentence to sound. Does this have anything to do with those reviews online? What reviews online, honey? You said they were all fantastic. I know, I know. It was just a couple, out of dozens. No place ever gets all good reviews. Listen, Keith interjected, placing his hands on both of our shoulders. It's nothing at all. As I said, just superstition. You'll notice that the paintings and photographs have been... altered. It was Mrs. Kelly's wish, and nothing of concern. Please enjoy yourselves this week. He turned to go. Wait, I called, as he was walking to the waiting car. How about you? Are you the superstitious type? He laughed boisterously, which I thought to be a little excessive. Why, Mr. McCarthy? I've never been given a good reason to be. It would take an awful lot to convince me of some ghosts. He opened the driver's door and stepped in. Have a good time now. I'll be at the house up the hill if you need. 
Stepping into that house gave me a feeling I can't describe, nor would I ever care to feel it again. An old rifle was mounted on the mantel above the fireplace of the sitting room, with the name Kelly inscribed on the chestnut handle. A giant portrait hung above that, perhaps four and a half feet tall. It featured a woman peering vaguely off into the distance, vigilant, although gladly accepting the protection of the family rifle underneath. She was wearing a deep red gown with her hands folded over her lap, her hair short and curling around her ears. And then I looked at the face. I twitched as the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I could feel the tingling of the goosebumps pressing against my shirt. I squinted, making sure my eyes weren't deceiving me, and I even stepped a few paces to the side to confirm it wasn't a glare. And it wasn't. Where the eyes used to be, there were two big splotches of a light, pearly blue paint that had clearly been applied well after the portrait was originally painted. The circles reached out to me, yet receded far back into the woman's face, so that I appeared to be staring into two endless tunnels of nothingness. The face was horridly empty, yet seemed to stare at me harder than anyone, real or drawn, ever had before. I turned to Sandra, who was already looking at me. She laughed quietly, as if trying to make light of it all, but still a little afraid of upsetting the woman in the portrait. What's that look for, Shane? There's nothing weird about this portrait, she said, smiling. Really, it's not that bad. It certainly doesn't ruin the rest of the beauty around here. Well, I think it would be beautiful, if not for that little artistic addition. I eyed the painting again. Kind of looks familiar, don't you think? I'd say it's Mrs. Kelly, only when she was younger. I shuddered. Gee, Sandra, now I'm going to imagine actual Mrs. Kelly with these big paint splotches over her eyes. Sandra widened her eyes, trying to look as ghostly as possible. Maybe that's what she looks like when the lights go out. After seeing I wasn't in a humorous mood, she added, All right, I was just kidding. Maybe it's just this one. Let's check out the rest of the house. Unfortunately, the rest of the house was the same story. Each room had six or seven old paintings or photographs, and every single one had the eyes painted over with the same eerie color. There was no escaping it, at least not by staying in the house anyway. As a result, we spent most of that first day outside, at least as much as we could. Sandra and I had each picked out one of the old books from the huge collection the house boasted and we were reading out in the backyard near where a neighbor was keeping his cattle. After a while, Sandra got up and went inside to get a new book. She came back to the doorway and called to me. She seemed pretty excited, so I figured I'd humor her for the moment. I walked in, and she was sitting on the couch with an old photo album. A really old photo album. The ones built to last a hundred years. Where did you find that? I asked. It was in between that bookcase and the wall behind the green chair over there. Why would you reach for that one? It looked hard to get, so it must be worth it, she replied, as though it were an obvious law of life. I looked at the old leather cover, waiting for it to open by itself with a puff of gold sparkles. Well, go on, have at it. Except when she opened the album, it was empty. She kept turning the pages, but each sleeve had either been robbed of its contents or never had the chance to hold any photographs in the first place. It wasn't until one of the very last pages did we find anything, 
and it was a picture that was turned face in, so he only saw the back. In less than a second, my mind was flooded with a thousand images of those pearly blue tunnels reaching out, pulling back. My skin began to crawl again, and I squinted hard as my eyes watered a bit. Nearly every part of me did not want to see the other side of that photograph, but in an instant I knew my hands wouldn't listen to any amount of reason. They crept down the page, and sliding my fingers in opposite directions to open up the sleeve, I pulled out the photograph and turned it over. In the black and white picture was a young man with his wife. Sandra drew in her breath. <sighs> Shane, look, that's Mrs. Kelly. Honey, you can just tell. I'd never been one to be able to pick out resemblances, or who's cousins with whom, but this one was obvious. I remembered her active and mysterious eyes from our meeting earlier. Her eyes. His eyes. For the first time in this house, there was a picture with the faces still intact. I held it up to get a better look, and when the sunlight from outside hit it, I felt an oddly cold breeze rush past me. I shut my eyes as the goosebumps on my skin became almost painful. Sandra, close that window, please. My wife looked at me, puzzled. Shane, none of the windows are opened. She hesitated. Is everything okay? Well, I just wanted to... Never mind. I said, putting the picture back and closing the album. It's all fine, but I do think we should go outside and enjoy this beautiful day. I didn't come here for the house, after all. And so the rest of the day went very well. We stayed outside, and that helped me keep my mind off of all the weird things I had seen inside the house. Unfortunately, I couldn't stay outside when night fell. I told myself, tired is tired, and that I'd be able to fall asleep without too much concern over the house's unique art style. But my active mind ignored my exhausted body. I couldn't decide which was more unsettling. The 99% of the photographs that had the strange paint over the eyes, or the lone photograph that didn't. Was that one forgotten? Or was it left that way on purpose? In the dark of our bedroom, the barely perceptible glow of the covered eyes brought me back to my original fears. Mumbling, I pushed away the covers and got out of bed. As I was pulling the first of many pictures off the wall, Sandra stirred. Shane, no more pictures. We've looked at enough of them for one day. I agree, which is why I'm doing this, I explained, taking the first one off and putting it on the floor, face to wall. As with the rest of the house, this room had nearly ten paintings or photographs on the wall. I took no chances, removing even the ones that were of sailboats or coastal villages. In fact, most of them were largely impersonal, consisting of either elaborate panoramas or old collector's portraits of French people from the 18th century. I reached for the last one, which was in all black and white, and had to squint to make out what it was. I took it over to the nightstand and turned on the lamp. I thought we had agreed on no pictures until tomorrow. Whoa, I said, examining the figure in the frame. This one is different, though. As creepy as the giant portrait in the sitting room was, this one was ten times more so. It is said that at night, our thoughts and emotions run a bit wilder than in the daylight. And while that may be true, the eyes, or lack thereof, staring back at me struck my composure like nothing before. It was an old military photo with the caption at the bottom of Colonel Kelly. He was standing with a rifle resting on his shoulder, free hand at his side. I absorbed everything about the setting. The sun beating down on a stuffy military suit, 
exotic animal sounds coming from the trees in the background, the smell of vegetation mixed with gunpowder. Although the man's eyes were covered in that same pearly blue paint, the hardened, focused expression of his cheeks and mouth convinced me his stare pushed right through the barrier. I could feel the heat of his expression. Maybe that one should go in the closet, my wife said softly, looking over my shoulder. I turned around to see she was smiling, rubbing the small of my back with her soft touch. Even though I'm certain she meant it as a joke, I opened up the closet and put the picture on the floor, face down against the wall. I crawled back into bed, still scratching my chin, solidifying the notion that sleep was far away. Shane, honey, you're going to have to put this out of your mind. We've done all we can do for tonight, right? I rolled over onto my side to face her, my head propped up by my hand. I know, but it's just so hard not to think about. Do you think the rifle on the mantle is the same one as in that picture? Sandra shrugged, smiling. I knew she was doing her best to keep me calm, even though she was probably tempted to roll over and go to sleep. I'm sure it could be. Does it really matter, though? That's how you have to think about it. It doesn't affect our vacation either way. The house is still nice. The lake is still beautiful. You're still with your wife. I chuckled. There you go again, teaching me lessons. It's summer vacation, you know. At least humor me just this once. If it is the same rifle, then it's almost like he's protecting his wife. I'm sorry, Shane, but I don't think old Mr. Kelly will be doing any more protecting. Maybe not. I murmured, turning back over, trying to will myself to sleep. I don't think I ever made it to the realm of dreams. Perhaps my mind had drifted in between, in a semi-conscious state. But soon after ending my conversation with Sandra, I was pulled back to the awareness of the bedroom by a swift wind blowing over the bed. Even under the covers, my legs felt a brisk rush as though I had walked out into an early winter morning. I sat up and scanned the room seeing nothing other than Sandra's chest rising and falling rhythmically, a perfect contrast to my unstable state. After a few minutes of looking, listening, and feeling in vain, I suddenly heard a muffled dripping noise coming from the closet. Knowing I was far too alert to ignore this and try to sleep again, I slid out of the bed and crept over to the door. I pulled on the tiny handle, opening up the dark of the closet to the dark of the room. Being totally unaware of anything else, I turned on the lamp near the closet, waking up Sandra. Aw, oh, Shane, I was just getting to sleep and... Wait, do you hear that? She roused herself enough to sit up and listen. After a moment, she looked at me and nodded. I took my gaze from her and stared down at the floor where the picture sat facing the wall. Trembling, I reached down and began to pick it up. My hands felt something wet. Startled, I dropped the painting and looked down at my hands to see faint stains of paint on my fingertips. Sandra, realizing a further deterioration in my composure, got up and came to the closet. She bent down and picked up the painting for me, turning it over. From the moment my hands felt the wet paint, I believe my brain started to subconsciously sort through the uncertainty and discern what was happening. Sandra's turning over of the frame only confirmed what something deep inside of me knew. I began to absorb the contents of the photograph all over again. The feelings, the sounds, the smells. But when my eyes truly focused, two things were completely off. 
First was the fact that the pearly blue paint had dripped and run down the entire length of the photograph, even dripping onto the floor where it was placed. Even more unusual was the fact that Colonel Kelly was gone. Sandra and I looked at each other. I saw her calm demeanor truly shaken for the first time in this house, and my anxiety multiplied. I thought of her little jokes and comments up to this point, which made my thoughts wander throughout the house and downstairs to the mantel. Oh my goodness, I stuttered. Without any explanation, I ran out of the room and down the stairs. Sandra lagged behind, a little more cautious of my change in energy. Downstairs, she found me standing limply in front of the fireplace, hands feeling along the empty spot on the mantel. Where did you put the rifle? Sandra asked, more out of formality than legitimate curiosity. You know I didn't touch it. I said, looking around the sitting room, as though one of us had absentmindedly placed it on one of the many pieces of furniture. Before I could even look around, the lights went out, and everything went black. Shit, I yelled. What the hell is going on? Where's the box, honey? Could just be a fuse. Even in such an intense situation, Sandra remained calm, attempting to give this obviously sinister house the benefit of the doubt. I felt my way along the wall expecting at any moment for a hand to grab mine and pull me into some hidden abyss. Recalling the fuse box to be in the kitchen next to the fridge, I worked my way in that direction, finally feeling my hand along the metal frame of the box. Opening the little door, I pulled my cell phone out to light up the inside. Sandra, I called back toward the sitting room. I don't know how to explain this, but it sure wasn't an accident. I could hear the creaking of the floorboards as she made her way into the kitchen and when she arrived, she saw the wires had been ripped out from their connections. Call Keith, right now. Give as little information as possible. Our power is out, okay? I nodded, knowing she had much more control over the situation than I did. I dialed, not even thinking about the fact that it was almost midnight. He picked up anyway, sounding much more alert than I would have expected, and agreed to come down after I told him we had a power outage. Sandra and I waited in the foyer of the house, and soon enough, we saw a flashlight and a tall, muscular man walking down the hill from the house above us. When Keith got closer, we opened up the door, and I waved my cell phone light to show him where we were. He waved his flashlight in response and began to jog the last remaining steps to the house. So, you got a power outage, huh? Well, I'll just duck in and out really fast. This happens from time to time. Only, whatever was happening now doesn't happen from time to time. The moment Keith stepped inside the door, it slammed shut behind him, rattling the nearby window panes and wall hangings. Careful, I said, turning around to Keith. It seemed I had caught a glimpse of some ultimate terrible expression on his face, although he very quickly mellowed it out, down to a look of general unease. As I said, I'll just be in and out here. We all walked toward the kitchen, Keith leading by flashlight. When he got to the fuse box, I felt a cold rush of wind that was becoming a bit too familiar. I turned around frantically, half expecting something significant to happen. I was right. All of the lights in the entire house flashed on, brighter than I had noted them being during the day. And in the moments following, I could only think of how I wished they hadn't come on at all. Everywhere I looked, I saw the photographs and portraits, only now they were horribly distorted. The pearly blue paint had begun dripping and leaking out of them, 
just as they had done in the picture of Colonel Kelly, except here the images of the people themselves were also beginning to melt. The entire house seemed to be sliding downward under the weight of some invisible, formidable presence. I thought you said this was all superstition, I yelled at Keith, who was now looking just as scared as I was. You're right, I did say that. But ask me now and my answer would be quite different, he whispered, as though he was afraid his earlier conviction might somehow offend whatever was causing this episode. He retreated away from the kitchen and made for the door, except it would not budge. He shivered, as the entire house was now being filled with cold, excited air. Turning frantically, Keith caught sight of the sliding glass door in the sitting room. See if that one will open, he yelled over to us, already starting to head over to it. I tried it, not surprised when the handle refused to move. Back up, get behind me, Keith yelled, pulling out a revolver from inside his jacket. After I got out of the way, he shot at the lock of the door. After a few bullets, the frame splintered and the window pane of the door shattered. Let's go, he said, waving us along from just outside the threshold of the door. We didn't need to be told what the plan was. We were already on our way out. When we breached the threshold, Keith poked his head around inside one last time. A burst of cold, visible, pale blue air broke through the doorway, knocking the groundskeeper onto his back in the grass. We were out in the open except somehow the surrounding temperature dropped to a near-frigid level. I went to go grab Keith, who was wincing and pulling at broken glass in his arms and hands. Sandra helped me pull him up, and together we hobbled down the grass hill of the yard. The facade of the house was now dark and calm, as though it didn't concern itself with the chaos it contained. So where do we go, Keith? My car is back up near the house. I stared at the groundskeeper realizing as soon as I spoke that he wasn't any more experienced with supernatural houses than I was. Just keep going, he groaned. I don't care, just away from that house. We continued our way down the hill. All we could think to do at the moment was get farther from the house. As we passed the electric fence closing off the nearby cattle pasture, I realized we were getting close to the lake. A slight fiber of relief awoke in my body, hoping we could take one of the boats at the boat ramp and row to another house for help. However, when Keith saw how close we were getting to the water, he started to resist and cry out. We can't go down there. It'll be just as dangerous, he blurted. What do you mean? I asked, confused. Yeah, how do you know? Sandra asked, less confused and more suspicious. What aren't you telling us, Keith? She sounded stern now, like some developing connection in her mind made her forget the recent danger. I'm not withholding anything. I just don't feel like going out onto the lake in the middle of the night is a good idea. He had stopped moving his feet now, which caused me to stumble slightly. Come on, Sandra insisted. We have cell phones, we have a light. There's nothing to worry about. She pulled on his arm, and I did too, preferring to side with my wife over an increasingly suspicious groundskeeper. Keith resisted and even pushed us slightly to try to distance himself from us in the lake causing Sandra to trip and fall near the wall of the boat ramp. He fell backward as he tried to pull away from us. I crouched down to her to see if she was all right, algae squishing under my boots. I looked up to feel a cold rush blowing past my face, only this time coming from the lake. Suddenly there were ripples in the shallows of the water. I saw the tip of the rifle emerge first, followed by a hat and a head. Despite coming up from the water, 
I could tell by the lack of shimmer that nothing about the gun or emerging person was wet. I shined my cell phone off into the distance to see a face I just about recognized. It was a face that I had earlier seen with covered eyes, but now I was seeing the face as it really is, or was. Colonel Kelly approached us, taking his gun off of his shoulder and pointing it straight ahead. I grabbed Sandra and wrapped my arms around her, realizing there was nothing I could actually do to escape or save us. He kept walking, marching even, until he was inches in front of us. Then, he was inches behind us. As the apparition passed through Sandra and me, I felt what I had first felt when I looked at the picture in the old photo album. A cold rush of air. Only now, it was infinitely more intense. My skin turned black with frostbite. I was paralyzed on the spot. If something other than that otherworldly being had touched me at that moment, I would have shattered. Once he had passed, I slowly recovered, just in time to turn around and witness Colonel Kelly standing over Keith, his groundskeeper. Keith looked up at the ghost with a face I had never seen before or since. It would be useless to try to describe it. How are you here? He fired off the last shots his revolver had in it, and they passed harmlessly into the night. The rifle was raised, now inches from Keith's face. You were supposed to be out of the way! He looked at the two of us and covered his mouth. Then he looked back at the barrel of the gun and covered his eyes. Our second story today, Potion Number Us by Samuel Cole from Woodbury, Minnesota, is probably my favorite submission that we've received so far. Samuel Cole lives in Woodbury, Minnesota, where he finds work in special event management. He is a poet, flash fiction geek, and essayist enthusiast. His work has appeared in many literary journals. He's also a prize-winning card maker and scrapbooker. Without further ado, Samuel Cole's Potion Number Us. Scott pushes open the Venetian-style front doors with the kind of exuberance normally meant for Vegas honeymooners or surprise birthday parties. Neither true nor upcoming. He throws his jacket on the floor and leans against the kitchen doorway, trying to imagine life without Donna, his wife. He sighs and thinks about the word loneliness. Donna, sitting on a leather stool at the center island, slips a blue pen up her sleeve and a white piece of paper into the middle of a Bible, neither original nor unfamiliar. Trying to imagine life without Scott, her husband, she sighs and thinks about the word companionship. Juanita and James, Scott and Donna's children, run up the staircase and talk over one another about who loves the movie best. Both wants the other to shut up. No you. No you. No you. Scott and Donna, unaware that the other is thinking about the word goodbye, give each other a quick smile. Not too big. Not too small. But just right. So unlike the wrong they've become. If we could concoct a potion to help us fall in love again, what would it include? Scott asks, standing behind his chair at the head of the kitchen table. He points to Donna's chair directly across. Let me smell your breath, 
she says, unmoved. He continues to point. This isn't me drunk talking. I'm being serious. What would you put in it? Potions are for children's books and chiclet movies. He swirls his hands over a deep blue Art Deco glass bowl sitting like hardened brine in the center of the table. A wedding gift he gave her 23 years ago, come November. Tonight, they belong here. To us. To 1936 Donegal Drive. You on crack. I wish you wouldn't belittle me. Donna thinks about the word wish. Scott thinks about the word crack. Seriously, what would you put in it? I sure don't want cancer again. This isn't a cure for disease. Scott thinks about the word sarcoma. So you do prefer me dead. Donna thinks about the word remission. Not exactly. Now focus. You know I detest playing games. Think of it as a riddle, then. I hate riddles even more. You said I lack spontaneity. Well, here it is. I said that like 20 years ago. Better late than never, right? More like once upon a time. Scott opens the sliding glass door and steps onto the deck. Inhaling the backyard scents of elm trees coated with snowfall, he thinks about the word scream. Donna opens the refrigerator and pulls out a short plate of eggplant tartine. Chomping an icy tune, she thinks about the word exasperation. You're letting all the cold in. Close the door already. Only if you agree to make the potion. Leave it open then. She stands. It's your bill to worry about now. Can't you just play along? Fine. She sits in her chair. Game on. I want specific items. He closes the door and sits. Good times in the past to help brew better times in the future. He flicks his fingers into the bowl. You start. Silence fills the kitchen, interrupted only when the furnace kicks on. Scott stares at the bowl and thinks about the word shallow. Donna sets the Bible on her lap and thinks about the word forgiveness. I guess I'd throw in those first few Valentine's Day cards, she says, if I'd have kept them. Poof. He flicks his fingers over the bowl. What else? I think we can both agree we love some sesame chicken at P.F. Chang's. Poof. Definitely a dirty martini from Georgette's. I like those too. He smiles. Food and drink brings people together, no? Donna thinks about the word together. Tell me what you and the children talked about at the movies. Scott thinks about the word children. You're not supposed to talk at the movies. What movie did you see? It really got me thinking, though. I mean, if the kids at Hogwarts have a problem, they make a potion to fix it and change the outcome. What grade is Juanita going into next year? Seventh. Mm, no, eighth. She's going to be a freshman, Scott. How do you not know that? Fine. 
You win, I lose. What's James's favorite movie? Harry Potter. How can you be so clueless? What's the name of his karate buddy who's over here almost every weekend? You know I'm terrible with names. You don't know it, do you? Scott and Donna sit quiet, each thinking about the word clueless. Maybe you could put in a dash of leniency? He asks. I've put in way too much already. You don't have a little bit more? I lost it all during your first affair. Scott thinks about the word Meredith. She was more toxin than potion. Donna thinks about the word Meredith. She was more tramp than anything. I'm sorry for hurting you. Then why did you do it again? I never set out to do it, if that helps. It doesn't. Scott thinks about the word aging. I've said a lot of hurtful things about your appearance that I wish I could take back. Donna thinks about the word appearance. Neither of us will ever be 25 again. Those women made me feel a little more relevant, he says. That's all. And they made me feel a lot more obsolete. Their eyes meet, and an unexpected pulling and tightening of strings between husband and wife erupts before they quickly look away. Donna thinks about the word relevant. Scott thinks about the word Charla. Did you ever love either of them? Maybe for a moment. Moments you should have spent on your family. I see that now. How? Scott thinks about the word vulnerability. I've taken a lot of things for granted. Things I wish I could go back and redo. Donna thinks about the word redo. Did you ever bring either of them to the house? Scott brings the bowl to his chest and thinks about the word house. Did I ever tell you my father was homeless for a spell in his early 20s? Donna stares at the bowl and thinks about the word 20s. Did I ever tell you my father cheated on my mother with a girl who was half her age? She scoffs. What is it about a girl at 19 men can't refuse? Scott offers his hand. Donna shakes her head. Scott withdraws. Donna brings the Bible to the tabletop. He pushes the bowl to the center of the table and thinks about the word religion. Since when did you become religious? She thinks about the word religious. Having a creed is a good thing. You ought to try it sometime. I'd put in our wedding vows, he says, flicking his fingers over the bowl. Speaking of creed. You can't put in what you failed to keep. Scott stands and runs up the staircase. Running back down, he carries two black pens and two blank sheets of paper. Let's write new vows, he says, ones we promise to keep. What have you done with my husband? So you're still Mrs. Marsden, Mrs. Marsden? He flicks ten fingers ten times into the bowl. Someone call 911. She looks around the kitchen. Anyone? Hello? Are you seeing this? Poof. Poof. Poof.
Forget it. Call a straitjacket instead. They laugh and laugh and laugh, their voices resonating as one. Donna thinks about the word resonate. Were there only two? Scott thinks about the word Mandy. Yes. Promise? Scott stands, opens the refrigerator, and finishes the chicken salad congealed in a Tupperware container. He tosses the container and metal fork into the stainless steel sink and thinks about the word clash. Donna pulls from her Bible the white piece of paper and from her sleeve the blue ink pen and thinks about the word consequences. Scott opens and closes random kitchen drawers, pulling from the scrap drawer a red ink pen, which he sets beside the blue pen atop the Bible. You want blood? Fine. He offers both wrists. Slash away. I'm finished cutting you and me down. Scott sighs, sits, and runs a finger over a long groove in the table. Donna sighs and does the same thing. Their fingers meet, touching for the first time in over a year. They pull away and retreat into the boundaries time has drawn between them. In the beginning, they wanted so much to be what the other needed. And wanted. Underestimating the power of dissatisfaction, acrimony, and secrecy. If their marriage comes to an end, and likely it will, who will the children blame? And who will the children claim? I'm going to write new vows. Scott scribbles across the page the way a doctor fills out a prescription pad, while Donna turns over the white piece of paper. Scott leans forward and sniffs. Donna shoes him away. I've already written my new vows, she says. He uncaps the red pen and writes on the palm of his hand. Done. He makes a fist. You start. Donna thinks about the word start. I could have handled one affair, but not two, if that's really how many there were. Scott thinks about the word Heather. Think whatever you want. I know the truth. Did you ever really love me? If you don't think I did, you don't know me at all. Donna slides the white piece of paper into Scott's chest. Here's the ingredients in my potion. Half the cash in the money market account. The lake house, pontoon, and ski boat. Full custody. Monthly alimony of $8,000 plus $1,500 per child per month. The Lexus Coupe and Mercedes. The Waterford China. Sole proprietorship of the Children's College Fund. The divorce papers. Signed. Sealed. Delivered. After a few minutes, Scott stands. What did you write on your hand? Clear revelation. Revelation of what? He takes to his knees, lays a fist on the table, and gradually, thumb to pinky finger, opens his fist. There were five.
just so you know. Well, that does it for the debut episode of Secondhand Stories. You heard Covered Eyes by Ryan Jorley and Potion Number Us by Samuel Cole, and we're hoping to hear your story next. Check out our guidelines and everything else on our website, secondhandpodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Please give us some feedback. We really want to make this show happen, and at a certain level, that's up to you guys. So, get writing. Special thanks today to Chloe Mixovic, who read Donna's dialogue in Potion Number Us, my co-producer, Colleen Stewart, and everyone who listens to and supports the show. Subscribe to our podcast, and slow down and listen up with us again in two weeks. Thanks for listening, and happy writing. A quick editor's note. All submitters to Secondhand Stories have signed a contract stating that they have not plagiarized other people's work. If you feel your work has been plagiarized, please contact me so I can get you in contact with the author. Secondhand Stories is not liable if one of the stories is found to have been plagiarized. Thank you.